Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Well, hey friends, welcome back to Engage 360. I'm Don Payne. We're here at Denver Seminary and I'm joined today again by our president, Dr. Mark Young. Mark, welcome back. Thanks, Don. Before we get underway this week, I want to remind you, kind of while I'm thinking about it, that full transcripts of all of our podcast interviews are available on the seminary website if you ever have need of those. Of course, all of the audio recordings are still available there as well. But regardless of the platform on which you normally listen to Engage 360, you can always go to the seminary website. It's denverseminary.edu slash podcast. And look for the episode you want. There will be a little icon there where you can download a full transcript of each episode. And I hope you'll avail yourself of those um, of that resource. Well, a few weeks ago, we tackled the issue of God's sovereignty and what it means to say things like God is in control when life is flipped upside down and we can see no reason or pattern to it. Now, this week, we want to send another probe into that topic because it involves some long-standing and really troublesome questions about how God relates to evil and suffering in particular. And to help us in that endeavor, our guest this week I'm really excited about is Dr. Anna Robbins, who is president of Acadia Divinity College and dean of theology at Acadia University in Nova Scotia. Anna, welcome. Welcome to Engage 360. Thanks. Thanks, Don. It's really great to uh, to join you here. We are so so glad you could, even though we've got a I think about a three hour time difference uh, between us. Well, the the theological word that is often um, used to as leverage to talk about this kind of problem is theodicy, which some dictionaries will define uh, as a, a vindication of. God's goodness or divine goodness and sovereignty in light of the existence of evil. And Anna, I guess maybe a lead-off question in all of this is, even, even though there have been lots of apologetic efforts, apologetic explanations offered by Christians to make sense of that question of God and evil, God and suffering, wh- why is it that we need to keep thinking or thinking more deeply about this question, about theodicy? What keeps us coming back well, to this I think question? We, yeah, I, I mean, I think we keep coming back to it because the experiences of life drive us back to it in part, right? I mean, from the very beginning, there's the question of if God is good, then why are all the nasty things happening around us? And so um, whenever we experience, I think, in our lives something that uh, seems like God could have stopped it, and if he could, why didn't he? He should have done um, then we come back to all those questions all over again, whether it's an incident that happens around us in a crisis or whether it's a personal thing, someone who is ill that we love and you, you want God to do something about why isn't he acting. Um, I think it's those experiences of life that keep driving us back to that question. I think, too, the way that we um, approach the question and the way we frame the question is very much um, shaped by the culture in which we live. And I think that is a is a uh, of real real significance for us at this point in in our own western history particularly the way that we pose the question um the way that we feel that we can approach god and ask that question um is itself very much shaped by the culture in which we live so i i think it's a it's a perennial question of course 
um, but but I the way we answer it has also been shaped by by those cultural realities. Yeah, and sadly, as we're recording this, uh, you and your part of North America are are right on the heels of a uh, a pretty intense travesty uh, of late, and so I'm I'm sure that this is really fresh for for all people, and particularly the church there in in Nova Scotia. Yeah, I think it always it it always is whenever tragedy strikes. And of course, you're referring to um, um, a mass shooting that happened in Nova Scotia uh, just a few weeks ago. That um, you know that we read about these things elsewhere and hear about them elsewhere. They they tend not to happen in a place like this. People have the sense here that you know it's quiet and relaxed, and we're all about the sea and the sky, and um, and the thought that that such an interruption can come into our peaceful lives is devastating. And then, of course, that was already in the midst of being locked down from the pandemic. And then right on the heels of that, uh, of course, you know, crises around um, racism and unjust killings. And, yeah, your mind reels. God, where are you? How can this all be happening? Yeah, and I remember hearing you say at a conference we both attended in January that Traditional approaches to this question have left us unsatisfied in a lot of ways. Um, would you comment on why those traditional approaches have left us unsatisfied, particularly when we have evil that occurs at the hands of evildoers, but we also have catastrophes and other things that create suffering that we certainly would want to avoid? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways from an apologetic standpoint that we can approach both of those questions, whether we see it as, you know, a moral evil like a shooting or a natural evil like a pandemic. And um, I think, you know, the the, the traditional approaches um, from at least the Enlightenment period onward have been to justify God somehow, that, that somehow in his character, to justify that he's not flawed, right, that he's not evil, that, that, that evil can coexist with a good God somehow. And they become very philosophical. Um, that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and, um, and, and I think reason can turn itself to help us at least wrestle well with some of those questions. But I'm not convinced we will find the best answers there. I know having taught uh, apologetics over many years, the, the, the best essays that come back on the question of theodicy are always ones that don't resolve the question tidily, if that makes sense. They don't resort to the philosophy that then people find difficult to relate the experiences of their lives to this kind of esoteric thinking. And, um, and the best answers that come back tend to be the pastoral ones. You know, what does it mean for God to be with me in this? What does it mean that that maybe God um, hasn't abandoned me and that somehow God can paradoxically live um, his good character in the midst of the evil that I'm experiencing in my life or that I'm <clears throat> witnessing around me? So um, I think I think a lot of us have been left cold over the years with that. I mean, there there's some good arguments there and reason can help us. But in the in the heart of the question, you know, how does how does God? Why has God allowed this to happen? Um, I'm not sure that that high level philosophical philosophical formulae touch most of us where it really where the hurt happens, if that makes sense. Yeah, that really does because what you're talking about, Anna, is a is a very different 
angle of approach uh, than the angle that presumes that if I can find the answer to that question, then it will be okay. And I've right, never, I've right. never heard it put quite that starkly, but I can recall from years ago in, in my own pastoral ministry, dealing with people for whom life had sort of collapsed around their feet in one way or another. And they ask, understandably, and I mean, we all ask, why? And it took me a while right. to realize that when people ask that why question, they're not always or not necessarily looking for a philosophical answer. That is more of a lament. It's a protest. And in other words, they're not looking for the type of answer yeah. that, if given, would say, oh, I get it. Oh, well, it's all okay now. Let's go have coffee. You know, it's not, right. that, that's not what they're looking right. for. I mean, who, exactly. Who, having lost a child, wants to hear liveness is free will defense, right? I mean, why, why would you engage that at that point? There might be a place for it. Somewhere yeah, but, yeah, in a but theological that's not the place. class, or, but, but that's not it, right. And for most of us, and I say this even as a theologian, um, having spent lots of time with those arguments, having made many of them myself and would still continue to in the right context um, in order simply to, to be able to understand and to cope with life as it exists, um, they're not satisfying to me personally um, in terms of how do, I, uh, how do I put those things together. And and so uh, I came to a point of realizing that maybe I was just asking the wrong question, to mm. be honest. Maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Anna, I've really appreciated your approach to understanding how context shapes the way we ask the question and the way we attempt to come to grips with it. And I know that you've done a lot of work in the area of secularism and in particular Charles Taylor's uh, work. Uh, by the way, you're one of the few people I know who've actually read the whole book, uh, his book, A Secular Age. It's kind of like Karl Barth's Dogmatics. Yeah. Everybody talks about it. Nobody's yeah. ever actually read it, right? It, yeah, and I yeah think, I've never read Karl Barth's Dogmatics. <laughs> right. But I would go on to say you're the only person I know who can explain it in a way that most of us can understand. So I'm wondering if you could think with us out loud about how has secularism, at least as Charles Taylor has described it, how do they frame the theodicy question? And what kinds of answers, and by they, I, I shouldn't use that pronoun, how do those of us who live in the secular age tend, non-theists, for example, to answer that question or to ask that question, and then what answers uh, yeah. would be listened to? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, first of all, Mark, you're very kind because um, I would never claim to be an interpreter, really. Well, I, I do claim, don't I, <laughs> sometimes when I'm speaking to be an interpreter of Charles Taylor. Um, I, I would say I've taken from Charles Taylor which, what makes sense to me, and, and, and it has helped me to understand our context. And so I would say in as much as he's helped me to understand our cultural context, he's given a bit of a language um, and some insights, I think, for understanding where we are in our culture with the theodicy um, issue, because it is a problem for us um, in our culture today. And it's a particular problem because for, as the Enlightenment period unfolded, we then, for the question of, you know, how do we have reconcile a good God with the evil that we encounter in the world, you know, up until the time of the Enlightenment, largely, that was a question we had to continually just wrestle with it, wrestle with it, wrestle with it. When we hit you know, the 1700s onward, you finally have 
this option, which is um, a theological exit, right? So if you can't resolve the question satisfactorily, you can walk away from faith. And so I think that what was observed in that time then has really come to fruition in our current culture because we're, we, we've reached a point where if we, if we take some of those observations, put them together with consumerism, the way we understand God in our culture is as the great capital P provider. And as, as we've developed the ability to look after ourselves better and better and better, then he becomes a much smaller and smaller capital P provider, right? Because there's less and less we need him for. Um, and I'll use the him pronoun for God because it's easier for me. But the less and less we need God for um, as time goes on because, you know, I make a good income. I can provide for myself. I, you know, I, I have my house. I have my car. I have everything I need. So God becomes then the provider only of things that I can no longer provide for myself. And what do those things tend to be? They tend to be things like um, intense sickness where someone um, doesn't have a ready obvious solution of healing available to them or a large um, uh, tragedy that happens internationally like uh, like a tsunami for example uh, where many many people are killed so we only need god then to step in and to intervene in those great big things that we can't control for ourselves and and the i think what that does is first of all it hugely limits god in our perception of who god is um, to this kind of provider of the things we can't provide for ourselves so that when he doesn't come through in the way that we expect God to come through, what's the easiest solution? Either to kind of continually hum along, pretending this paradox isn't existent in our lives, or we walk away. And I think um, Taylor highlights that for many people, there's a great relief in that walking away. And I don't know about where you where you folks are in Denver, but we, we see that all around us. Um, I think in, in North America and Western Europe, where I've, I've spent a good deal of time, um, that is the option people are taking because that's how it's presented. God is this provider of the things I can't provide for myself. If he's not going to do even that, right, the little thing that I've left for him, then why why hang on then? Why bother? Yeah, I've heard, that, I've heard that, that put. That, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I've just heard that put yeah, go uh, ahead. periodically by... Well, what good is God then? I've heard that phrase used. Well, what good is God? Right. And there's all right. kinds of and assumptions why would you, why embedded bother? in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> huge, huge assumptions, right? Because, um, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to all of that because I know these people, right? They're, we, we know them. They're all around us. Some days it might be us who feels that way. Why, God, this one thing I'm asking for, of you, right? It's one thing. You can't do that. Um, but but I think what what all of this whole this whole um, attitude highlights is is what Taylor calls the buffered self, where um, it used to be that kind of the cosmos and human existence were all caught up into one, and with the buffered self we've kind of um, made ourselves each individual person the measure of of everything around us. So we're the ones who measure what is good and what is bad. We're the ones who measure. Um, therefore, who God is and what God can and cannot do. Um, and we're the ones who then can stand in a position where we actually can question God. And so when I read this, it really challenges me because I think, is that the right question, really, then? Is to say, God, why are you not doing that one thing that I think you ought to be able to do? Rather than to say, actually, if, if God be God, 
maybe this is the wrong question. Maybe instead of why are you letting this happen, why are you doing that, why can you not stop it, to say what, what does it look like to actually just follow God in this situation. And, and I just think there's so much more richness for us theologically then um, than to just put God on trial and stick him in a box and leave him in the corner. I would love for us to be able to take a, a um, kind of take a swing at rebuilding a model of uh, engaging divine goodness and divine sovereignty from the vantage point of some better questions. And you've, you've certainly started us down that road, Anna. Um, can, can we develop that? Can we tease that out a little bit further? Uh, backing up, redefining, reframing some of the questions, and then suggesting a, a framework or a paradigm that would help the people of God know how to relate to God on God's own terms rather, rather than on terms we invent and superimpose on God. Mm-hmm. What, if that makes any sense, yeah. can we, can we kind of tease that out? Well, I think there are some, some places we can start. Um, you know, I think about, for example, P.D. Forsyth, who was writing at the time of the First World War, The Justification of God. And, you know, after, you know, many chapters of looking at different arguments for uh, justifying, you know, the goodness of God and the evil that was that, that terrible war, um, he comes with this conclusion that really we cannot justify God, that God justifies himself. And he points to the suffering Christ, the holy Christ on the cross, um, as as God justifying himself, saying, you know, these are questions that you can't ask, but look, I can, I've answered them um, here at this place. And that's that has to be, I think, our starting place. I would agree with Forsyth on that. And that can then lead us into a whole different set, maybe, of, of questions and a different direction, a different takeoff point. Um, but I think if people, if we're going to, did anybody ever argue anybody into the kingdom of God? I don't think so. Did anybody ever save anyone's faith through an argument? I don't think so. Mm, yeah. So what is it? Where, where is where is God then in the midst of it? And, and we start, I think, from the cross. Yeah, and that, I wonder whether this exposes a, a grossly underdeveloped theme within our theology. And and it's quite ironic, perhaps, because as evangelical Christians, we, of course, are going are gonna to say <laughs> and we're going to actually believe that we're all about the cross, right? David Bebbington's crucicentrism. I mean, that, you know, if we're right? not that, we're not anything. And, right? and the but, resurrection. But yeah. maybe we've missed that. But, yeah. but we take the resurrection, um, but we don't necessarily take, take the cross and um and 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 the cross says so much to us you know i can't help but think about uh well-known figures who lately have that have come out in public as walking away from the faith and when i've read some of those stories about some of those famous figures um in, in contemporary culture what what i notice time and time again is the description of why they walked away and why they walked away is grounded, it seems, is because they weren't grounded in a sufficient theology. You know, um, there's one article actually that I read about um, about one particular Christian who walked away who said, "If I'm good enough, had this had thought their they thought their view of God was always transactional, this big you know God provider idea again." 
Um, and they wrote this, if I'm good enough or if I pray hard enough or if I believe enough, then I get blessings and I get a baby or I get a good life and that's not how life is. And they walked away from God when they visited um, um, the concentration camp at Auschwitz and had to try to figure out how this God who provide, was supposed to provide all these good things could be held together with this idea of uh, the fact of the Holocaust. And to me, that is just the, 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 the theology that, that had birthed them, reared them, I'm not sure. That's a shallow theology that has never had to confront Holocaust. Um, and, and Jesus can confront Holocaust. Jesus is in the midst of suffering wherever it happens. And, and this is something I think we have to understand, even in the contemporary crisis of, of what's happening with, um, with black lives and, and, and so on, that, that, that suffering and the goodness of God, although they're difficult to understand and we may never understand them, they don't have to be antithetical in the sense that God is there in the midst. And I think black theology is one example of a place where those two things have been held together. I think that's a really profound observation. And one of the ways I think we've gotten to the point we are is our movement, evangelicalism, at least in the United States, was essentially a revivalist movement, right? It was mm -hmm. the offer of something good. It's the offer of eternal life. And if you, do mm -hmm. the, if you do the right thing, just like this man wrote or woman, if you do the right thing, then you'll get something good, meaning if you believe in Jesus, you'll get something good. And so we, had a very, we have and have had a very transactional concept of gospel and faith and what it means to be in relationship with God. We would always say, of course, it's because Jesus died on the cross, but that wasn't the main point. The main point is what you're going to get from God because Jesus died on the cross. And what God was going to give you was always something good. So we drink, we continue to drink deeply from that view, just as you described God as a capital P provider. But we're, we're so negligent in our whole Bible understanding when we think that, though, aren't we? Because you don't have to go any further than the Gospels to read what Jesus says to his disciples, that that if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. <laughs> and if life was hard for me, it's going to be hard for you. And I think for a long time, um, as evangelicals, we've, we have done that. We've held out a view of salvation that is, come to Jesus and everything will be great. And I'm not sure that's a fully orbed biblical view. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, where, where a biblical view says, come and follow Jesus, it's really hard. But you got a Holy Spirit to walk with you. Yeah, yeah, that's that'll that'll promise, really sell, right? won't it? Yeah. <laughs> Come follow yeah, Jesus. Right. This is really going to be hard. <laughs> you, you can fill some tents with that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know that you oh, are. Uh, I know that you are um, a keen critic of contemporary culture. Where do you see in literature, music, um, cinema? Where do you see the theodicy question being asked? And what are the answers that you see in contemporary uh, culture, particularly arts, uh, to that question? It's an interesting question. Um, for some specific examples, I might, I might need to think longer. I have a sense, though, that the question um, might not be might not might, we might be past the question in culture um that's my suspicion 
that um, that the question resides with those who are still holding on to a modicum of transcendence and that those who have surrendered an idea of transcendence that is of God uh, have moved on um, I, I think that there's a great nihilism that characterizes contemporary culture in terms of cinema and so on um, that is featured far more than uh, than an existentialism maybe used to be to kind of you know the idea of pushing forward and seizing the day and you only live once and I think that's giving way in many places to uh, to a nihilistic view and probably has done since the late 80s actually um, where the idea is you you know you can seize the day if you want but it's not going to go anywhere everything just comes to nothing eventually and so the idea that there is a great relief in letting go of the transcendent and letting go of God only goes so far. There's a great relief maybe for the first month or so, but then there's this great anxiety that's created because um, where do you go then with it? How can anything mean anything? And I think out of the pandemic, we're going to see some huge issues emerge. I'm already seeing this in, in conversations online and so on amongst people who uh, previously would would find a great joy in life saying i don't see that there's any point anymore um and and i think this is going to be a huge issue in a in a culture that has jettisoned an idea of a transcendent god um, um and and have held only on to the idea of imminence um in other words the what charles taylor called the malaise of imminence you know that um, once we realize that ourselves are all that there is um, there's a real crisis of meaning that arises. And I think we do see that in many places um, in the arts. I'm not saying there's no no glimpses of hope anywhere there. Um, but the, the thing I see overridingly in, in pop culture, at least, is, is nihilism. Um, it, it comes to nothing. How do you live without a sense of meaning and purpose then becomes a huge issue for us as a culture. Um, do you see... On. I'm sorry. Yeah. Do, no, do you, do you see any of that maybe in a in a more subtle theologically framed form in the church? I don't mean that rhetorically, I, but yeah, do, do yeah. I mean, I've all? been thinking. I haven't. I haven't developed it very much, but I I have seen. Um, yeah, the the meh culture exists in the church as much as anywhere because we've been so reliant on our own programs and programming and programming being the solution to everything and then you realize that there's no program that can solve the idea that everything is just meh all the time um, and that our purpose for so long became um, you know getting more stuff and being better than the church next door and um, all of that, and then and then it's, it is, it's meh, what? And I think in some ways evangelicalism has given way to a sort of evangelical deism. Yeah, God's around, but the way we've solved the theodicy problem is just to pretend like he's kind of out there, um, but not necessarily involved in my day-to-day, -day, um, so that way I, I don't give him the blame for stuff that happens. And uh, we just live our lives like secular people, um, and God is just kind of out there somewhere rather than understanding ourselves as uh, disciples of Christ in whom the very Spirit of God dwells. Um, it, 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 recall, it, it demands a theological um, counter-movement of some kind, I think. I'd love to have you, if you can, maybe if in, in your more hopeful moments, 
as you. Mm. Oh, I'm actually an optimist. Good, good. Maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting myself onto you. <laughs> in uh, in your. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. Okay. As you look forward, maybe five, ten years from now, what mm. what kind of how would you characterize the church as it ought to learn from all that we're going through right now? Mm. I, yeah, <laughs> I I think that the reality of post Christendom is is hitting the ground pretty hard, and um, I think you folks are probably a little. Um, uh, behind in the echoes of that from maybe what we are in Canada and Canada's behind what they were in yes, Western Europe when I was living there. Um, but um, post Christendom is hitting the ground hard. And that means that people who, um, people whose faith is based on a cultural construct, which is, well, this is what we do. We go to church. This is what we do. We believe in Jesus um, rather than, because of any uh, life-transforming presence of the Spirit, um, that it's just going to fall off the edge pretty quick. I think we're in the midst of that now. So um, we will see, I think, continue to see a significant decline in church because church doesn't seem to have addressed people's questions of theodicy with that kind of hard-hitting, yeah, it really hurts, this is terrible. Um, let, let's, let's cry together to God, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I really am hopeful because I do see bright lights and I think there will emerge, um, you know, a fresh movement. Uh, maybe it'll be characterized by leadership from the next generation. Um, but, but I do think it will definitely emerge and it will emerge far more authentically, um, maybe than previously, less um, tied in with cultural values, much more attuned to a scriptural uh, view of the world and of life, much more community-based in terms of being based around the community of faith, uh, embracing of the diversity of the people of God. Um, I'm very hopeful. It will be far less institutional, I think, and um, and we'll see a, a massive change in our denominational structures, I believe. I think as seminaries, we're going to have that huge impact um, and, and we can prepare ourselves for it. I think there are ways of preparing for it um, and, and nurturing it, to be honest, from the seminary. Um, so I'm, I'm hugely hopeful, but I don't know what, exactly what it's going to look like any more than anybody else. It'll, yeah. it'll probably be much more locally based, but, but at the same time, you've got there's going to be the, the online piece shaping that as well. So, well, um, I can put this question to yeah. both you and Mark because you're both in leadership positions at the forefront of theological education in North America. What implications does this have for theological education moving forward? Yeah, I, I think one of, the, one of the clear implications is that we can no longer view theological education as a place where we can have robust—not robust, where we can have— um, less than honest conversations about the differences in various faith traditions, meaning trying to argue one is better than the other or one has all the answers than the other, but that theological education has to address the kinds of questions that are being asked in the broader culture, questions of eminence and transcendence, questions of theodicy to the degree that we're able to say the world isn't what we want it to be, how do we enter into that world? 
So a recasting of traditional boundaries of theological discourse as discourse with those outside the faith as much as those within the faith or more than with those who are within the faith, I think is a major shift that we need to see in theological education and every discipline, every um, dimension of it. I also think that the front door to the church, if we want to just say, what are those pathways that folks are going to be accessing to want to explore faith, our faith? I wonder if the front, front door to the church isn't going to be driven more by the way we are able to lament with and enter into the suffering that people experience, the challenges they have in life, than having the answers to the questions. So a shift from a more purely intellectual approach to the faith and to apologetics to a more pastoral approach to the world as a way that then, as the church, we're able to bring people toward us. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, we live, um, uh, our seminary is on a secular campus, and um, I think in the past there was this sense that, you know, we— we were certainly regarded by many as the holy huddle on the hill. <laughs> you know, you kind of <laughs> keep your, to yourself and you have your own way of doing things and you make your own judgments. And And we are now so engaged with our campus. And there, people would say, I don't understand how that can happen. How can you be engaged on a secular campus in a secular country like Canada today? And And we're engaged because... We love conversation, <laughs> and, and people want conversation about things like God. I was at one event once in the neighborhood, and, and I had just done a, um, a conver- an open public conversation with an atheist in the philosophy department, and we're friends. We do that kind of regularly, and, uh, and she said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And I said, oh, why? And she said, because we never get to talk about God. We can talk about God, and, um, and it gives people permission because even people who um, might not have had a faith relationship with God for a long time or who never have, um, it's a, they want to talk about it because the experiences of life drives in that way. I agree with you, Mark. The pastoral side is, hu- is huge. People still have a sense when tragedy hits that, that they're, part of their anger, I think, comes because they are aware that there is a presence um, um, that cares for them, and there's a tension there, and um, and to be able to 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 enter into people's situations with confidence, um, I think is huge for us. And I'm a little bit wary because there is a sense in some circles that, you know, with the end of Christendom, that that we need to hunker down into this kind of exile mentality. And I think that is completely wrong-headed response. If we want to 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 live a theodicy, then we have to be out sharing people's pain and being willing to embrace it with them, not to hide away from the world or to circle the wagons against the world um, as if somehow if we stand there long enough, it'll go away. Um, I think we can have a confidence in our faith that the Holy Spirit is in us and we walk around with the Holy Spirit in us. We can go anywhere, um, not with arrogance, but with confidence and a confidence that can bear one another's burdens. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. There's such room for that and, and an openness to it. And if, if, we, if there's a future for the church, um, there are some deep roots to be set there. Well, I grew up in a Southern revivalist tradition, and I feel like I want to give an altar call right now. <laughs> that, that's, that's a hopeful note. 
Dr. Anna Robbins of Acadia Divinity College. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us. We're Fantastic. Really, really grateful for what you're doing uh, in Nova it. Scotia. Yeah. Well, this is Engage 360 at Denver Seminary again. And on behalf of Dr. Mark Young, our president, uh, our guest, Dr. Anna Robbins, and uh, Krista Ebert, who is faithfully on our soundboard right now and does all our quality editing and the rest of our production team, we want to thank you for spending some time with us. Hope you'll make that a regular practice and let us know what you find beneficial. You can reach us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. Take care. We'll talk to you again next week.